And welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast I use as an excuse to research things I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And then I teach the best bits to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So, this episode is part two of History of Hygiene. Um, It is. And I know it will be our grossest episode ever, unfortunately. But also, there was some cool stuff through the disgusting bits and sure. and uh i wanted to go through it if any like keep i mean the poison squad ones were pretty gross so yeah that, we that's pushed a through that one so mm-hmm. i think this is a little grosser probably okay. maybe well let's half. find out um with that being the case how about you teach me something okay so early early humans obviously um just went to the bathroom wherever they felt like it like Sure. You know, and same reasoning as any animal over here because I don't want it near where I sleep or over there because then my scent won't be near my camp. You know, like just just things like that for um, not being hunted purposes. Yeah. And then we were nomadic, though. So we moved around. So we went to the bathroom and then moved away from it. This makes sense. We didn't Um, take it with us. Right. So there wasn't a whole lot of issue as far as contamination and hygiene in that way. Um, and then, you know, farming happened. It did happen. And then domesticating animals coincide with that. Yep. And there's settlements that all of a sudden have a lot of waste. Sure. Um, so this is the Neolithic period. Some areas they started to dig pits away from where they lived or kind of in the middle of the field there were some designated bathroom spaces outside the village or kind of like behind these particular bushes or something sure um there were some that used river banks you know just like the age-old practice of going in the river and sending your waste downstream Um, so as things started to get bigger and bigger and humans kind of advanced a little bit uh, we're having, you know, to find creative solutions for all this waste. Yeah. Um, and just before we get going, I was looking into what people wiped with throughout history after using the bathroom. Okay. Um, so snow, water, sticks, leaves, grass, stones, animal furs, feathers, moss, sedge, hay, straw, corn cobs, Seashells hmm. and pieces of tapestry. Some of those seem more pleasant than others. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was surprised to hear the seashell thing was real. I thought that was just a joke from Demolition Man. I yeah. I know that was a... Well, but you still don't know how to use the three shells. I I'm don't assuming. know how to use the yeah. three shells. Yeah. We've, we've come too far since then. <laughs> and we'll get back to. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's worth pointing out that the stuff that we're going to wipe with is, like, biological organic material. Like, it's not going to last long. It's not going to be preserved in the archaeological records the same way other things are. So we don't really know. Right. And we know that we don't know. There's a lot of stuff that we're missing about what people could have been doing. Okay. 
Um, I want to start talking about the Minoans. Let's do that. Um, we're always all, you know, Greece and Rome, Greece and Rome. But the Minoans weren't Greek. Okay. They were before ancient Greece. Were they? Where were they located? In like um, the... On Crete. Okay. And some of the other Aegean islands. Yeah. From 2600 to 1100 BCE. Oh, okay. So that predates ancient Greece, is what we're saying. They were there first. Um, They're very successful. They eventually built more than 100 cities. Wow. Yeah. Um, Knossos was the Minoans' largest city. You probably have heard of it, that K-N-O-S-S-O-S. Yeah. Um, Its population was about 80,000 to 100,000 at the height. And so if you do some gross math. That's a lot of poops. Yeah, because the average person, average adult person, produces about a pound a day. Um, wow. Yeah. That is quite a lot. And, you know, we'll factor in that some were kids. So okay. maybe we're not going to do max, you know, amounts. But um, likely they're saying the Minoans, you know, would generate around 50 tons of waste a day. That seems like a lot to deal with. Right. Their so, armpits really that big. So part of it. You know, we know they did some fertilizing of plants. Okay. okay. Um, but what do you do with all of all of that? So they answered that question with water. You know, important to note that every early civilization was around water. Yeah. Um, it was super important for everything. So it's not kind of a surprise that this solution um, turns up again and again. Um, but basically... You know, the Minoans were the first to start really wipe washing their stuff out to see at a large scale, um, which is important and it helped us take step forward in hygiene. Yeah. But just like as a FYI, you know, those things in fertilizers or like human waste and industrial yeah. waste gets into um, watersheds and like the soil has an issue because of the amount of nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and carbon that are in those things, which soil likes to be rich in those things to grow plants and the water really does not want to have those things. So when it gets in, then you get these huge toxic algae blooms. Right. um, Which harms seafood, definitely hurts people, like that kind of thing. So that's all kind of, it's not all the Minoans fault. I'm not going to blame them (laughs) because they started dumping their poop in the ocean, but they were like, you know, the first to cause probable large-scale algal blooms in this manner. Um, but, yeah, back to their solution. So they kind of made almost a flushing toilet. Okay. A flushing toilet, but without, you know, me- mechanism. They used running, or, like, water poured. Mm-hmm. Um, so 4,000 years ago, the Palace of Minos in Knossos had a cleaning system, and the rainwater from the roof uh, was collected, and they used it to flush the sewage from the bathrooms that were in the East Wing. Okay. Um, so that was a pretty good solution and they kind of developed a really sophisticated, um, pipe system under the floors, which went into a really large underground channel. And so they use these ceramic pipes to take it out. So it's like an actual, like it's actual plumbing, right? Impressive. Um, and they had manholes for cleaning it and for like having to unclog things. And, Mm -hmm. um, they had to build like these ventilation tubes that were large enough for workers to enter them. So they had like a really large structured sewer system. Um, another kind of advanced early civilization 
was called the Harapan Civilization. I had not heard of them before. They're also called the Indus Valley Civilization. Um, and not shockingly, they lived in the Indus Valley. Oh, that's going to be my next um, question. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> During the Bronze Age. Um, they also built a really impressive sewer system. So its height was between 2600 and 1900 BCE. Uh, and they had their capital city, Harappa. Um, and it's in the current day Punjab province in Pakistan. Okay. Um, for a frame of reference here. Um, they had more than 23,000 residents in the city of Harappa. And it was like about 370 acres. So it was pretty... Hmm. Okay. Pretty large. Yeah. Not like huge, huge, but yeah. Um, they had other well-developed uh, cities. And it's more than 2,000 years before the Romans invented their kind of aqueduct yeah. systems. Because people always talk about the Romans. them for that, yeah. Right? Um, they have also, like the Minoans, made kind of a sewer out of clay brick kind of piping kind of thing. Um, okay. They use ceramics as well. Like they like made an actual sewer system. They had cesspools like every yeah. so often to collect everything and make sure nothing got clogged and they, you know, were covered and they could open the covers to do maintenance and all these different things. Um, they had 20, di- uh, 20 inch like deep gutters kind of all over that would okay. run into the sewer. Um, so yeah, it was really like elaborate and uh, they kind of were able to avoid a lot of uh, illness that some of the other people were dealing with at the time. So yeah, they're pretty cool. And then we get to the Romans because we are going to talk about the yeah. Romans. Um, unlike the Minoans and the Harappans, Rome was actually big. It was sure. about a million people at this time, which is that's significantly more yeah. crazy to me to think about a million people in the city back uh, back in this time. Um, so obviously they're going to make like, you know, a lot more waste. I would think so. So they made a colossal sewer system. Uh, the greatest sewer or Cloaca Massima named after the Roman goddess Cloacina, who is the cleanser. Hmm. Okay. Well, sure. I can see the direction on that one. Right. So the Cloaca Massima moved millions and millions of gallons of water and flushed about a million pounds of poop a day. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a historian, Strabo, who was Greek, and he had written about it that the sewers were big enough in Rome for wagons loaded with hay to pass and for veritable rivers to flow through. So, you know, Good they job, had some basically. pretty impressive sewers. And the Romans are also kind of famous, pretty famous, for their public bath. Yep. So that wasn't just baths. Those were also toilets. They had public toilets, um, okay. usually in the same places. Not always together, but usually. Okay. Um, and, you know, in their private homes, they had a different thing. So latrine or latrina in Latin mm-hmm. is the private toilet in someone's home. And, like, it's just like a seat over a cesspit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of them used chamber pots at this time. The obviously richer ones that had slaves to go empty them in the garden yeah. or whatever. Um, so they didn't want to connect their cesspools to sewer pipes because they thought, you know, we're going to get smells and rats and other vermin in our house because of this. So what they would do were they would hire stercori, 
which is the Latin for manure removers. Mm, I to, bet they had a fun job. To go clean the cesspits whenever they got a little too full. Wow. Okay. Yeah, really good job. Yeah. Um, so public toilets, usually in the middle of the city, and everyone could use them, um, were called forakai. And they were, like I said, often attached to the public baths. So they used the water from the baths when they were draining it to flush Everything away, away. The, mm-hmm. the waste after. So that's why they're often connected. Which totally makes sense, um, yeah. They're built from marble. And there's actually some ancient public toilets that have survived to this day, like one in Ephesus, which is an ancient Roman city that's in modern-day Turkey. Um, just like long marble benches with rows of holes in them. Like there's no dividers hmm. or anything. Sure. Um, one historian said that the clothes they wore would provide a barricade so you actually could do your business in relative privacy and then get up and go. And hopefully your toga wasn't too dirty after that. Hmm. Privacy, privacy. They didn't, yeah. they didn't care. Um, but the public baths had low roofs and tiny windows. They were often really dark. People didn't really clean them much. Um, many historians think they're kind of so unwelcoming that the upper class Romans refused to go into them, even though they were the ones that usually paid for them to be put up in the first place okay. is these wealthy Romans. They, they would like buy a toilet for their community. Kind yeah. Of thing. Okay. They it's probably because they them. were looking for their community to look and smell nicer, probably. Yes. I'm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it wasn't just, you know, those elite that avoid going into the 4K. It was also women because this is mostly, you know, a men's world out in public. Um, and maybe slave girls might go in if they had to, but not sure. by choice. Um, There's a lot of fear that women weren't safe in those types of places. Okay. Weren't safe in the public bathrooms. Yeah. Unfortunate. It's dark and gross and full of men. Yeah. Yeah. So, also, if you're going to be in these public bathrooms, you might have wiped with something called a tersorium, hmm. which is like an ancient device that was just a stick with like a sponge on it, on the end of it. And then it would be like soaking in salt water or vinegar solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're mentioned all throughout Roman literature. There is a um, lovely passage and a letter by the philosopher Seneca to... Lucilius, who is a Roman official, and Seneca is telling Lucilius that this German gladiator committed suicide because he shoved a stick tipped with a sponge devoted to the vilest uses down his throat rather than head into the arena to die by wild animal. So oh. historians are like, oh, look, there's the tersorium. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so there is these little troughs at the feet when you're sitting there doing your business, um, that would have, hopefully, we think, had running water through them. Sure. And then you could maybe rinse off the tersorium and put it back in its little... It's kind of like the squeegee things at the gas station. They have a little mm-hmm. basin it sits mm-hmm. in, and then you take it on, you use it, and you put it back in there, and then the next person comes and grabs it out of there. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they would do. So um, a lot of people had worms. Yeah, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I can see some potential problems coming from that, yep. There's even some debate lately between archaeologists and historians who are wondering if the tersorium was really used for wiping or if it was used for cleaning the toilets. Sure. Who knows? 
Um, so there's another thing that they would use to wipe within that time called a pessoy that they found in ancient Greek and Roman toilet sites. So they're like small pebbles or kind of pieces of ceramic. Okay. Um, so the ones they found during the excavation of Athens on the Agora, for example, were described as three to ten and a half centimeters in diameter and about 0.6 to 2.2 centimeters thick. And they've been recut from old broken ceramics to give smooth angles that could minimize anal trauma. Mm-hmm. I was going to say ceramics don't seem like I think of broken ceramics and I just it seems like there would be too many sharp edges. But I guess if they're shaping them into smoothing the edges, uh, like sanding them, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Okay. <laughs> so they even found this 2700 year old drinking cup. Uh, that has a scene of a man squatting and clearly wiping with a pesoy stone. Okay. Yeah. So there's been some scholars that um, also said that they believe it was an ancient Greek custom to wipe with ostraka. So if you've never played Assassin's Creed <laughs> Odyssey, yeah. or you know, know things about Greek culture, uh, ancient Greek culture, should I say, Ostraka are these little pieces of ceramic that would have peep some, someone's name on them and they would use them to vote whether to ostracize someone. That's right. Ostraka, ostracize, comes from there. Um, and so the thought is like you're literally putting poop yeah. on that person's name because you despise them and some historians argue that this is what happened and some are not convinced uh, there, this is not like they were found covered in poop or anything, but just some examples when they were doing the Athens excava excavation and a place called Pyrrhus, they found Ostraka with the names of Socrates, Themistocles, and Pericles, which I think is cool. That is very cool. People trying to ostracize them because of politics and all that. Yeah. Um, so... The thing is, though, is that, as you probably guessed, all this stone wiping um, can it's cause abrasive. chafing and hemorrhoids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is a very high incidence in ancient Rome that we know of, of, of hemorrhoids. Mm -hmm. um, and we, there's a lot of cures to hemorrhoids. Of course. Um, can we cue Pliny now? I was so excited when I found a way, some way to make Pliny relevant to this episode. Perfect. Okay. Pliny the Elder's cures for hemorrhoids. Using onion as a suppository. Ooh. Eat garlic with wine, but vomit it back up. Oh. Use a fresh root of rosemary and rub it on to the anus. Mm-hmm. Then you could, or you could use swan fat or the urine of a female goat. But maybe the oddest one is... A cream made from the lard of a pig and the rest of a chariot's wheels. That might have mm. been in our Pliny episode. That rest from no, chariot no. wheels sounds somewhat familiar to me. Well, he probably used it in a bunch of things. Maybe. And then for chafing, here's what Pliny had to say about that. Okay. okay. I just get a quote. Sure. For chafing of the fundament, mm -hmm. an application is made of heads of mullets and sir mullets reduced to ashes. Now, those are fish, by the way. Oh, okay. Fish. For which purpose they are calcined, I don't know what that means, which is why I'm quoting, in an earthen vessel and must be applied in combination with honey. Okay. Honey's a must. Calcined heads, too, of the fish known as minae are useful for the cure of 
chafes. The torpedo, which is also a fish, mm-hmm. I had to look this one up, applied topically. Just the fish itself. Applied topically, reduces procedence of the rectum. Okay. Yes. Um, river crabs reduced to ashes and applied with oil and wax are also curative. Sea crabs are equally useful for that purpose. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of fish you can yeah. somehow I was, rub. I was noticing a, a trend there. Mm-hmm. Um, they also found small fragments of cloth in a sewer in Herculaneum, Italy, which is one of the towns buried by Mount Vesuvius. Mm-hmm. Um, and they think it could have been used as a form of toilet paper, except for they know that cloth was made by hand at the time. So yeah. it would have been one of the, you know, uber wealthy. Sure. It would be a very decadent thing to do. Of course. Um, jumping over to Asia. Let's do that. So in Japan, in the 8th century C. Not not 8th century BC. Okay. People would use a type of wooden stick called the chugi. I don't know how you say it. Okay. Close to that. Um, and they would clean both the inside and outside of themselves with okay. that stick. Okay. Yeah. In uh, 1992, an excavation site that used to be a stop on the ancient Silk Road. This is in northwest China. Um, archaeologists discovered seven what they called hygiene sticks in the latrine area. So these are bamboo or wooden sticks wrapped with cloth designed to be used for wiping. Um, the cloth on the 2,000-year-old sticks was covered with what they assumed to be human excrement, and then they're going to analyze it. Sure. Um, and they found out that the parasites in the feces were uniquely human. Yeah. So it was feces and it was most definitely human human. feces. Right. Um, so, but what about toilet paper? I'm wondering. I was wondering. I would assume that's a relatively new invention. Well, paper originated in China in the second century. Yeah. BCE. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. But you assume that toilet paper would be relatively recent? Yeah. I would assume that paper would be too... Uh, valuable or like associated with high class to be used for such a thing for centuries. Well, I mean, of course you're right in some areas, but um, the first recorded use of toilet paper or paper for cleansing after the toilet, should mm-hmm. we say, because at this point it was not quite being tailored for that. Um, it's from the 6th century CE now. Okay. So we're 800 years later in China. Yeah. In China. Um, and it was discovered in the text of a scholar, Yen Chi Tui. Um, so in 589 CE, he wrote, quote, paper on which there are quotations or commentaries from the five classics or the names of the sages I dare not use for toilet purposes. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, he'd obviously referencing a practice that's, that happens, right? Yeah. So, so like most of these things, we don't know when it started. Right. We know it started before this. Right. That's all Enough thought, to right? be part of the cultural... Yeah, for him to write about. So we just... Yeah. Uh, we don't know what we haven't found yet, but... Yeah. Got it. So paper for wiping um, was actually found. There's a, like hemp-like paper found in the tomb of a 2nd century CE Emperor Wu Di as well. So they're thinking it's probably at least that old, but mm-hmm. again, not 100% um, sure on that one. So by the early 14th century, so we're going to fast forward another 800 years, though, the Chinese now are manufacturing toilet paper at a rate of about 10 million packages, and a package is like 1,000 to 10,000 sheets every year. 
1393, they made thousands of perfumed rice-based paper sheets specifically for the Hongwu Emperor's imperial family to use. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, And then in contrast, it took until 1857 for kind of the West to get its first mass-produced toilet paper, especially us over here in the New World. Closer to what I was expecting to hear. Which is the year that inventor Joseph Gaiety introduced J.C. Gaiety's medicated paper for the water closet. Okay. Um, not that you would know what it was for exactly from the ad copy. You had to kind of, <laughs> you know, be real delicate in those days. Yeah, of course. Okay, so I'm going to read you the ad copy from 1857. Please it's do. long, but I, I liked it. So hold on. Many people have wooed their own destruction physical and mental, by neglecting to pay attention to ordinary matters. Few persons would believe that a beautiful enameled card contains a quantum of arsenic with other chemicals, which, if used to any extent, will communicate poison, and that fatally. All printing or writing papers contain either oil of vitriol, chloride of lime, potash, soda ash, white clay, lime, ultramine, or oxalic acid. White paper contains wither some or all of these fearful poisons, while colored papers, excepting gaieties, which is a pearl color and made to be as pure as snow, embody portions of prussiate of potash, bichromate of potash, muriatic acid, Prussian blue, aquafortis, copperas, and a variety of other articles equally dangerous and pernicious, but too numerous to be cataloged in our little circular. Physicians owe it to the rising generation to caution all against touching or tasting such deleterious and death-dealing material. Wow. Printed paper, everybody knows, is rank poison to tender portions of the body. Individuals would not put printer's ink in their mouths, as one of its ingredients is lamp black. Yet they have no hesitation in allowing themselves and children to apply that ink to the tenderest part of the body corporate, if we accept the eye. How much cheaper in every respect is it to use a paper made of the purest material and medicated with the greatest care? Such is Gaiety's medicated paper. Okay. So, no one really mentions anything about going to the bathroom. No. Or wiping. Except for the sly, like, sly yeah. little, except for the eye. Ooh, we're talking about the butt. Oh, gee. Yeah. Anyways, um, I just think it's really funny to hear that old ad copy and the kind of long spiel and the, the way dramatics it's sold. Yeah. of it, you know? Um. So the first perforated toilet paper rolls were introduced in 1890, and by 1930, toilet paper was finally manufactured splinter-free. Oof. Wow. Good. <laughs> That's a long run of splintery it toilet is. paper. Yeah. I would probably rather use grass than splintery toilet paper, but I, I guess you, I don't know the difference. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, but I want to go back in time a little again. Let's do that. And talk about royal hygiene. Hmm. So, Let's do that. in July of 1535, King Henry VIII took his court, which is over 700 people at the moment, um, and they went on a, a official royal tour of everywhere they could everywhere. think of, really. Yeah. Um, over the next four months, they visited around 30 different royal palaces and aristocratic residences and religious institutes, like all the places they visit. Um, and these were like important PR stops. No one's saying that there was no reason for them to go on this tour. But what I didn't realize until I researched this podcast is there was a better and more important reason that royal households constantly moved around. Mm -hmm. 
I think I know where we're going with this now. Yeah, well, so after supplying the feasts for 700 people, what would soon be 1,000 people, he, his court kept growing as he moved, um, livestock and farmland, you know, needed to recover in that area. Sure. Um, but, you know, more than that, they really needed to escape the disgusting messes that they made. Yep. I, okay. Yeah, so they had to constantly evacuate the different palaces so they could clean up all the human waste. Um, so basically Henry and his court just kind of kept moving throughout the year, traveling often between the 60 different residences the king had to try to avoid, you know, poop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically one author describes how within days of a royal party settling into a palace, a stink would set in from discarded food, animal waste, vermin, and human waste, which accrues in the underground chambers until it can be removed, which is not until they move on again, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, so the number of court members that Henry had going at this time was so dense that they just, like, really didn't clean it, couldn't clean while they were there at all. Um, and you can imagine this is going to lead to just gross. Um, gross. But what I didn't realize is apparently royal courts were known to be kind of dirtier than any peasant home or like anything. And I I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, So here's a little tidbit that I found funny. So Henry VIII really, in his latter years when he was a little more angry, um, was being driven crazy by the mess and people just going to the bathroom anywhere they want. So he uh, had them paint large X's in like problem spots that people kept peeing on and as you were probably imagining it had the exact opposite effect and people just aimed for it instead yeah um so that yeah did not work um the king did have you know kind of a sophisticated lavatory system uh like you know the chamber pot type of type of deal but like other things like the servants were encouraged to pee in vats so they could collect their urine for cleaning Mm -hmm. um the cleaning they did was really just trying to cover up how bad things felt. Sure. So they would put plants everywhere inside. Um, They had, you know, potpourri is a thing for a reason. Didn't work super well. Um, So when once Henry and his court moves on from one place, then the uh, gong, the king's gong scour, scourers, scourers, that's a tough word. That is, yeah. Good job. Um... Yeah, they move it in there, the ones that have to clean up the disgustingness. Um, So another author said that after the court had been in place for four weeks, the brick chambers would fill head high with waste by the time the gong scourers moved in. Yikes. Okay. So obviously this gives people diseases. Yeah. They were saying, like, people apparently just didn't bother looking for anywhere and just quote, dropped their britches and did their business in the staircase, the hallway, or the fireplace, etc. Just wherever they were, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, A 1675 report wrote this about the Louvre, the palace, not, you know, it was a palace at the time. Yep. On the grand staircases and behind the doors and almost everywhere one sees, there are a mass of excrement. One smells a thousand unbearable stenches caused by calls of nature, which everyone goes to do there every day. So don't go to any stairs, apparently, at the Louvre. Hmm. Pretty sure they've been cleaned. But I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, 
personal experience has dictated that it seems to be a bit better now. Phew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so really, it was the Sun King himself, Louis the Fourteenth, who kind of put the nail in the coffin. Um, you can't clean if you never leave. So he was the one that chose, you know, his court's not going to travel anymore. We're going to permanently put ourselves in Versailles in 1682. He wants to get away from those commoners in Paris. Mm -hmm. And he wants better control over his nobles. So he wants to keep them in one place. So they all move out to Versailles and they're not going to go anywhere anymore. You know, and this is beautiful. This is a mega palace. It's gold everywhere. Um, But if you've ever been there, imagine that there was at least 10,000 people there a lot of times. Wow. That's a lot of people for that place. And it's not like they had bathrooms. <laughs> right. Um, it was described as no clearer than the slum-like conditions of many of the European cities at the time. Um, women would just pull up their skirts to pee where they stood, while some men urinated off the balustrade in the middle of the royal chapel. Apparently, Marie Antoinette one time was hit by human waste being thrown out the window as she walked to the courtyard. Um, oh, good. The latrines often leaked into the bedrooms below them. The ones that they did have leaked, yes. Um, blockages and corrosion in the palace's iron and lead pipes were known to occasionally, quote, poison everything in Marie Antoinette's kitchen. Wow. And not even the rooms of the royal children were safe. So, yeah. Um... That's just my FYI fun fact. The royals were disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Next time you go to Versailles, think about that while you're walking through all the pristine the rooms. Beauty, the beauty. Yeah. yeah. Think about how bad it used to smell. Yeah. Yikes. Um. Okay. So to the toilet. Let's do that. Okay. We don't really know who invented the first flush toilet. Also, like, what do you count as a flush toilet? Sure. Um. So we're saying that probably, like we talked about the Minoans had a flushing toilet, if we're going to count that. And if we are going to count that, we think that there might have been a toilet in a Neolithic settlement dating back to 3000 BCE. Um, The Scots might have developed a a flushing toilet that early. Possibly um, in Northwest India, there's a 4,000-year-old drainage system, which might have been toilet, but toilets, but we don't really know. So it's kind of one, one of those contenders. Yep. Um, the most concrete evidence we have so far is the Minoans, but who knows? Um, just fun fact I wanted to throw in here in the history of the toilet. By 315 CE, Rome had 144 public toilets built. Okay. Yeah. Like in Rome itself, not yeah. across the Roman Empire. Yeah. Okay. The city of Rome had. Cool. That many. In medieval England, people really just did the chamber pot thing. Um, the more affluent are going to use the garderobe. Garderobe. Mm-hmm. Which is just a protruding room with an opening for waste suspended over a moat. Okay. And they think the name for that probably comes from... They would store robes in the toilet area because they thought the terrible smell would discourage fleas and other parasites from getting on their robes. Hmm. I don't it's know if that that's works. the case. Yeah. It's not how that works. Um... But peasants and serfs would just, you know, use the communal privies at the ends of streets. Uh, a huge public guard robe was constructed in London and emptied down directly into the River Thames. Yeah, okay, of course. Which was a contributing factor to the great stench that is going to hit London. Yeah. Which I'll talk about in a little bit. The great stench. 
Guard robes and public toilets eventually were replaced by the commode system, which is just a box with a seat and a lid. Um, and then there's a pot underneath to catch the waste, you know, nice porcelain or copper pot. Mm-hmm. Um, Louis the 11th hid his commode behind some curtains. Elizabeth the first covered hers in crimson velvet and lace and used sprigs of herbs to disguise the odors. Yeah. So it is a widely held belief, which I didn't know about because I didn't know who invented the toilet, but that Sir Thomas Crapper designed the first flush toilet in the 1860s. Okay. It's not a joke. Yep. That okay. was really his name, but he didn't do it first. He just like pat made it famous. He just yeah, patented okay. it first. Um, so it was 300 years earlier, during the 16th century, that the first flush toilet with like a flushing mechanism as opposed to like you put pouring water in water down yeah. it somehow okay um okay so sir john harrington who was a godson of elizabeth the first invented a water closet with a raised cistern and a small down pipe which the water ran through to flush the toilet he did that in 1592 um he built one for himself and one for elizabeth the first um but his invention was just ignored and then in 1775, Alexander Cummings, who was a watchmaker, developed that S-shaped pipe under the toilet basin to keep out odors. So then in 1861, Thomas Crapper is hired by Prince Edward, who later would become King Edward VII. Um, and Crapper was one that built lavatories in several of the royal palaces, and he patented a number of toilet-related invent- inventions. So he was... Um, just kind of the first to, to do it. And he also kind of had a showroom where he displayed these things and yeah. people would come and buy them. Rich people, obviously. I would suspect so. Yes. Okay. So the great stench of London or the great stink, you know, one of those two usually is yeah. what it's called. Um, so they had been building brick sewers in London since the 17th century. They just kind of covered sections of the rivers and just used them like they were. But you know what? Hmm. That's when they started developing them. Um, between the mid 1700s and the mid 1800s, they built over 100 sewers. By 1856, they had around 200,000 cesspits and 360 sewers. But that still wasn't enough. Great. Um, so the population of Britain was increasing pretty fast. There's industrial revolution. Yeah. There's people moving into cities. So um, it went during the 19th century. We're going from one million to three million. Wow. Yeah, that's a yeah. big jump. So the number of toilets didn't keep up. Uh, in overcrowded cities like London and Manchester, they're saying up to 100 people might be sharing a single toilet. Wow. So the sewage is spilling into the streets and the rivers. Um, some of the cesspits were leaking methane and other gases, and they often caught fire and exploded. Um, many of the sewers were in really bad repair. They hadn't been kept up. Um, and so during the early 19th century, they are trying to supply more water to more Londoners and they replace the wooden water pipes with iron pipes, um, which you would think would be good, but it kind of contributed to the problem as well. Sure. Replacing kind of the pipes all open and all that stuff. And there's the runoff from factories and the slaughterhouses and other industrial things. Um, so most of this overflowed or outflowed directly into the Thames River. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know if you've heard of Faraday, the scientist Michael Faraday. Mm-hmm. Um, he has something to say about this. Good. Because he lived in London at the time. So, he wrote a letter to the paper in July 1855. He was shot at the state of the river. So, he dropped uh, pieces of white paper into the river to, quote, test the degree of opacity. Mm. 
And his conclusion was that, quote, near the bridges, the feculence rolled up in clouds so dense that they were visible at the surface, even in water of this kind. The smell was very bad and common to the whole of the water. It was the same as that which now comes up from the gully holes in the streets. The whole river was for the time a real sewer. So the government tried to pour some chalk lime chloride of lime and carbolic acid into the river to try to make things smell better. It's good to just start randomly dumping yeah. chemicals in to try to fix yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and so the Victorians, they didn't know germs yet. No. So their whole what is disease theory, they majorly believed in the miasma theory of disease, which is basically like bad air causes disease. Yeah. So like for them, basically a bad smell is what got you sick. Yeah. And... It smelled real bad. It sure did. And there was a lot of cholera and like other waterborne disease, right? A lot of cholera, uh, especially. Um, So they didn't think that they were wrong. (laughs) You know what I mean? It coincided. Sure does, yeah. Um, And it wasn't the worst theory of illness anyone's ever come up with. No, no. Um, So in 1848, the government said this. I know we're kind of going backwards here, but the government had said every new house should have a water closet or ash pit privy installed and then quote night soil men were going to come empty the ash pit privies um but it just didn't work so in august and even starting in july 1858 there was really hot weather in london and the smell of the you know human waste and industrial waste in the river thames was so bad um the government decided that they're just going to move the government building, it was too sneak, like too stinky. They had to hold, move the whole government building. Um, thankfully, they ended up deciding on a more logical course of action. Uh, and instead, they accepted a proposal from a civil engineer named Joseph Baselget to build, you know, interconnecting sewers that would bring the stuff away from the city. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he did a great job. The cholera got under control and people are saying that he has saved more lives than the effort of any other Victorian official ever because of all the yeah, disease. I could believe that. Um, yeah. And his sewer system is still what's operating today to serve, you know, over 8 million people. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's a big city. <laughs> yeah. Um, to conclude the section on toilets, the bidet. No one knows really who invented it. The thought is it was French furniture makers. Um, the earliest known written reference to it was 1710. It was invented to cleanse the, quote, private areas of the body because, you know, maybe they were only full body bathing once a week. So um, some sections of the population also started promoting bidets as a contraceptive. They oh. don't really have much other. Yeah. Just like how people used to think douching, with, you know what I mean? Yeah with Lysol. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, used a hand pump by 1750 to do it yourself. Of course. And they're actually very common, which I didn't realize in the Arab world and predominantly Catholic countries. Oh, so Italy and Portugal both have laws where the installation of, of a, in like a bathroom, if you're building a new bathroom, you have to install a bidet. It's been mandatory since 1975 in those countries. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, there used to be a lot in Spain. New new homes are starting to go away from it. Um, they're also found high, like 
uh, a lot of them in southern eastern Europe, like Albania, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Greece, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then they're also really popular in some South American countries, like Argentina and Uruguay. I don't know if that's something to do with the Catholic thing that they're talking about, but... Yeah, it almost assumes that's like missionaries bringing it over or something. Maybe. In 1980, the first paperless toilet was launched in Japan by a manufacturer called Toto. It was a combination of a toilet and a bidet, which also dries you. Oh. After it washes you. Um, and then these kind of combination toilet bidets, now they have like seat warmers, Ooh. are very popular in Japan and South Korea. In fact, there are 70, 76% of Japanese households as of 2015 have one of these amazing seat warmer, wash you, dry you yeah. toilet bidets. Um, super jealous. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds nice. Yeah. So I found something out pretty interesting, I thought, about how restrooms became a concept as opposed to bathrooms. Okay. Okay. Tell me about it. So, in 1851, there was the Great Exhibition in London, and thousands of people lined up because there was the most talked about attraction of the event, which is that for a penny, the visitors could see and test a modern marvel of technology. It was a mahogany-seated pull-chain flushing toilet in a woman's restroom. Okay. Yeah. So the Great Exhibition was one of the first major recorded events that featured public restrooms on site. Um, millions of people visited the Crystal Palace during the months it was open, and the organizers knew that people were going to come for the whole day, and they are going to need a place to go to the bathroom. Right. Logical. So for the women, this bathroom included a parlor attached to a room of toilet stalls. And the explanation at the time is the Victorians, you know, they valued their privacy and their modesty. And you have to get in and out of those clothes. And they needed, they would use this extra room to take off some of the millions of layers of dress or poof that they had to be able to go to the bathroom and then get dressed again. Obviously, you can only do that among women. It has to be an area in the women's bathroom. So as things evolved... um, they still kept the restroom concept mm-hmm. on a lot of older women's bathrooms. You probably haven't seen them recently, but it used to be like the thing in old theaters and old department stores to have a separate, like a lounging room attached to the toilet room. Right. Yeah. So you might have wondered why that became a thing. That's kind of why, but that wasn't why it would stay a thing. So there's like a lot of, factors that went into it but it was mostly like separate spaces that women's place was in the home and men's was in public so all of a sudden you have women coming out in public and Uh we need to have like a private area for them to get away from men of course um yeah it has to be like your own house women don't want to leave their house they need a comfortable like a safe space to go to when they feel overwhelmed by being in public of course And men designed these and the thought was like, what do women need to be like their house? Sofas. We need to put sofas in here. So when she's overwhelmed by, you know, her weak woman brain is overwhelmed, she can go lie down on the sofa, the fainting couch, you know. So that's why there used to be sofas in them. How thoughtful. Yeah. Um, So when they were first opened, they didn't even have toilets. Like, these things opened just to be, like, a living room, a space, quote, to protect women's virtue. Yeah. So then, 
Like there weren't even public toilets really at the time. Yeah. Like they were, you know, this is decades before public toilets became popular. Um, in fact, it was before um, America had indoor plumbing most places that lounges started popping up. Okay. Um, so one of the key figures in establishing public restrooms was someone named Isaiah Rogers, a Boston architect. In 1928, he was contracted by a local businessman to design, like, the first luxury hotel in America, basically, called the Tremont Hotel. Mm-hmm. And so he kept going with a separate spheres type of thing. And he made lots of rooms that were just for men and just for women. Like, there are separate parlors, separate libraries, and separate built. Oh, well, only a billiard room for men, not separate mm-hmm. billiard Not separate. Yeah, right. Women <laughs> can't know. play billiards. Right? Um and so the Tremont House was the first major building in America to have indoor plumbing. They had eight water closets on the main floor hallway, but they were each designed for a single user. Non-binary, not gender, yeah, yeah. because they were separate water closets. So he said, why would I need to say sure. men's or women's on the door? Yeah. Excellent. Um, then plumbing and sewage technology kind of started to get better until about the 1850s. People should start putting the water closets in these gender designated parlor yeah. rooms. Um, so they put like just a single user water closet, a few of them. They're still separate though. Okay. Into the lounge room. Um, and then about the 1870s, we start seeing kind of the women's restrooms with lounges because we started to get better plumbing. So we could have a lot more toilets in one area. Yeah. Um, so again, the couches were there. So the fragile woman could, rest and regroup. Um, and then it's important to point out that these spaces did end up being segregated by race as that time comes in America. Of course. Yeah. And I don't think this kind of goes without saying, but the spaces for black women were either absent or much less uh, ornate, spacious, yeah. elaborate than the spaces for the white women. Unfortunately, I don't think you could expect anything else at that time period. No. Um, so I'm going to end today with, a. Uh, grosser part okay but i also found it quite interesting to think about um that this was still going on today so open defecation mm-hmm. just you know, like in a field yeah type of, okay just wherever just yeah. not in a toilet type of thing okay yeah so it's on the decline worldwide um somewhere near 950 million people still routinely practice this um and somewhere between 560 and 600 million of them live in india okay so about half yes okay uh yeah if not more yeah so in 2015 the united nations uh you know they published these documents that say what their goals are right and what the world's goals need to be um and one of them was to end open defecation by 2030. Okay. So... When was that set? In 2015. 2015. Okay. So Vietnam, for example, has done a great job, all but eliminated that uh, happening in their country. Yeah. They're one of the success stories. Um, so the reason that UN made it so important, in fact, number six on the UN's list of sustainable development goals is because obviously it would improve health a lot to not have feces contaminated food and water and yeah. that kind of thing. 
Um, so diseases caused by poor sanitation and unsafe water kill 1.4 million children a year. So that's more than measles, malaria, and AIDS combined. Um, you know, sick kids also miss school. True. Something to think about is that in impoverished countries, menstruating girls miss school every time if they don't have proper safe right. toileting spaces. Yeah. Okay. That would be quite the deficit to their education. Yeah. So India has actually kind of had this problem for a long time. Um, sanitation is more important than independence, Mahatma Gandhi once said. Uh, the percentage of Indians who defecate in the open has been going down, but the population is really going up to the point where researchers feel like most Indians now live in places where they're more exposed to feces from others, not less. So so the percentage of people who are no longer open defecating is going up, but with the population also rising, the net number of people is still on the rise. Is that what that's suggesting? Other way around. The percentage is going down, but because there's so many people and mm-hmm. the spaces are getting more crowded, they're still being more exposed to it, even though the percentage is going down. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so in India, diarrheal disease kills over 117,000 children under five every year. Wow. Yeah. Um, there's millions of more that have chronic, um, intestinal issues. So they don't absorb nutrients and medicines well. Underweight women then give birth to underweight babies. Yeah. Underweight babies are more likely to have growth stunting. Um, in 2016, 39% of Indian children under the age of five had stunted growth. Wow, that's a big percentage, yeah. So the current prime minister of India, Modi, he campaigned with the slogan, quote, toilets before temples. Okay. In 2014, before the UN set the 2030 goal, Modi had declared that it was his intention to end open defecation in India by October 2nd, 2019. Okay. And it was Gandhi's 150th birthday. So he assigned $40 billion for latrine building and behavior changing ad campaigns. He called the campaign the Clean India Mission. The World Bank gave them another $1.5 billion in loans. Great. Um, so in 2019, Modi had said, The world is amazed that toilets have been provided to more than 600 million people in 60 months, building more than 110 million toilets. Um Great. No one was ready to believe earlier that India will become open defecation free in such a short period of time. Now it is a reality. Um, but not so much. Mm, so what this is kind of proven is that um, the latrine usage or not usage is not just about availability. There's uh, kind of deep-seated issues here culturally. Right that the government hasn't been aggressive enough in tackling, according to a lot of critics. Okay. Which I'll, I'll mention at the end. Um, so in surveys done throughout rural northern India, where open, open defecation happens more than in the south. Okay. People say that they like prefer to go outside. They think it's healthier. They think it's natural or virtuous. Uh, many rural Indians consider latrines religiously polluting oh okay um a toilet near the home seems to them more unclean than walking 200 yards away in a field and going 
over there. Sure. So they've been, community health workers have been visiting and educating the children about hygiene issues and why toilets are important. And then you have the adults and elders coming in and saying, don't listen to them, they're wrong. Like, yeah. toilets are going to make us sick. Yeah. How would we pay for that? That kind of thing. Like, you know. Um, so it's it's more of a rural India, more a rural India thing. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen in the cities. Um, but yeah, it's kind of the manly thing to do to go in the bushes as well. Um, there's like patriarchal advertisements that demand and ask the men of the families, why are they not building toilets for, and they don't say it's for the health of the family. Why aren't you building toilets to protect your wives and daughters from sexual harassment out in the bush or the shame of lifting their saris outdoors? I see. There's one campaign they ran, they ran that would encourage brides to reject the marriage proposal of grooms that didn't have a toilet in their house. Um, so this is one of the, the critiques is that the advertising hasn't been effective Okay. because it's aimed at the wrong things. Um, but as for the women, I mean, they actually as well kind of prefer it. So it turns out it's kind of like they don't mind the lack of privacy, but a group of young women may all go together out into the field and it's like one of the only chances they get to take a break from... Yeah. Domestic duties and hard work all day. And they get to socialize and talk with each other and stuff. Um, so it's like that movie cliche idea of women going to the bathroom yeah. in groups. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's like their only only break. They have a pretty hard life. Um, so researchers went and collected data on the train use by 22,000 rural Indians uh, the team discovered 40% of the households with toilets had at least one member who continued to defecate outside. Um, people with government-funded toilets were twice as likely to defecate in the open as those who built their own toilets. Okay, I'm not surprised by that, though. Yeah, their yeah. mind hasn't been changed yet. The government just made them. Yeah. Um, families without any toilet at all said they couldn't afford to build the type they'd actually use. I see. So the researchers found that the privately constructed pit latrines in India were four to five times larger than what was recommended by the WHO, World Health. Really? So World Health recommends 50 cubic feet. Um, and that that is going to take a family of six about five years to fill up. Okay. Okay. So the typical one in India was four to five times the size of that. And... According to the survey, the Indian people said their ideal size would be 1,000 cubic feet. And again, to give you some reference, that would be larger than the living space most Indian families have. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. So so what's up with that was the next question yeah. that the researchers were... <laughs> Something doesn't seem to so compute Maybe there. more scientifically than that. Um, why this obsession with the size of the latrines? So there's this misconception that educators can't seem to correct. People are pretty stuck and entrenched in their beliefs that the pit's going to fill up in like a few months. The pit's going to fill up. The pit's going to fill up. Yeah. And they're really worried about that pit filling up. Um, then they'd have to call a Dalit, a low-cased person, to empty it. And you couldn't clean it yourself because there would be objections from the community and you could be ostracized for cleaning your own toilet. So... The question was, why are India's open defecation rates so much higher than 
other developing nations when India is richer and has higher literacy rates and has more access to water than most of these other countries. Um, so it's basically the rural Indians beliefs about this purity and caste and stuff that seems to be the biggest factor according to these studies. Yeah. Um, so for thousands of years, the Dalits were, you might have heard them referred to as untouchables. It's a really horrible, um, thing that in the case system, they were the lowest and they were forbidden from drinking the same wells or being in the same temples or wearing shoes in the presence of the upper case, like all types of things like this. Um, they have, there's modern laws against discrimination like this, but they're rarely enforced apparently. Okay. Um, there's a lot of poverty and violence in these communities still, and they have to do still the dirty jobs, really. They clear carcasses from the roads. They clean the placentas from birthing rooms. They clean sewers. Um, and in recent years, there's been more of a push for equality, and they've been refusing to do these jobs. Good. So the cost of employing someone to do it now has risen dramatically. Sure. Okay. Because of a lot of demand and not a lot of supply. And so that's another factor in rural Indians wanting to save enough money to build this huge latrine because they're never going to clean it, really. They're just going to... Right. They just want to use it and forget about it. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really complicated. Uh, there's a lot going on there, and it kind of like proves it's really not about access to toilets. The access to toilets obviously helps. So before the Clean India campaign started, only 39% of households uh, in India had access to a toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2014, a study for northern states found that 70% of rural people defecated in the open. So in 2018, we already mentioned there's a lot more toilets by 2019. But in 2018, the study says that only 44% of people in the rural areas defecate in the open. So like I said, the percentage is going down a lot. Yeah. Um, But according to a few of these charities, it's really not uh, super helpful to have less open defecation until you get down to kind of a a certain kind of threshold of low amount. You know what I mean? Like you're, yeah. you're going to be causing people to get ill until you drop to a certain, um, so right. it's good that it's going down, but it's still not. Hasn't hit the critical threshold yet. Right. So the charities were saying that the government focused on getting the villages to build toilets, but it didn't consider maintenance and sewage management mm. and, um, like that they're supposed to not just make the latrines, but educate people how to use them. Educate them how to maintain them. Um, and and water sanitation hygiene is a charity called WASH. Um, we're talking about how, you know, the construction is the easy part. And they refer to it as we have to teach people the toilet's not a hardware. It's a software. Um, so the real conclusion here is that it's a behavioral issue, not about access. But they've got to find a way to to change, you know the culture like really deeply long held traditional beliefs and we all know that that's hard especially in these kind of rural mm-hmm. areas with lack of education so yeah we're pushing towards that goal i hope they can do something about that soon but yeah yeah absolutely yeah uh that was a national geo that article about india if anyone's 
wanting to look up more information about that. Great. All right. Well, that's all I have to say about gross toilet habits for today. Phew. Okay. Everyone can be relieved. <laughs> A little bit. Don't yeah. worry. Next time I do history of hygiene, it'll be like makeup and perfume or something flowery and nicer. We'll put a nice little bow on this trilogy. <laughs> I guess it could be. Yeah, trilogy. That sounds good. Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, I want to say thank you, everyone, once again, for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm.